If you would be taking out your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 will be there in just a moment. We began several weeks ago a series of lessons on just some basic biblical principles that were part of the home Bible study that I was tasked with putting together in this preacher training program. And we began several weeks ago by talking about the, raising the question, the Bible, is it God's Word? Before we go any further in a study like this, we have to understand, is the Bible really and truly the Word of God? And so we, t- we asked that question a few weeks ago. And asking that question, we look at the resurrection and, and came to the conclusion that if the resurrection is true, then it proves Jesus the Son of God and it proves His Word true. And we looked at evidence for the resurrection from the dead. We talked about the empty tomb, the witnesses, the change in the apostles, the change in the Lord's enemies, the change in Saul of Tarsus, and came to the conclusion he really was raised from the dead. But not only did we look at the resurrection as evidence, we looked at the pro- at prophecy and the power of prophecy. There were all the prophecies made concerning Jesus. And we talked about the statistic that was done by Peter Stoner in the book Science Speaks, where the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies that were given in that book, that just those eight prophecies alone, the odds of one man by chance filling was one in ten to the seventeenth power, yet Jesus fulfilled over three hundred of them. We didn't just talk about the prophecies of Jesus, there were all the prophecies that were made concerning the nations. And we talked about Egypt and Babylonia and the prophecies made concerning them. And those came to pass exactly as it was said. Prophecy proves the Bible, the Word of God. We talked about the unity of the Bible. The fact that despite the fact that it's a compilation of 66 books written over a 1500 year period by about 40 writers in three different languages, there is no contradiction and there is complete and total agreement and common theme. We talked about the survival of the Bible. Voltaire said within 50 years the Bible would no longer be discussed among educated people. There were the Bible burnings of the Dark Ages, and yet today we're still here talking about the Word of God. It shows it to be the Word of God as it claims to be, and it's completely inspired. The thoughts are inspired, as we saw from 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is given by inspiration. But even the very words, as 1 Corinthians 2.13 points out, that it's not words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And so the Bible indeed is the Word of God. So then we raise the question in, in the second lesson, if it's the Word of God, does it matter what we believe about the Bible? So we looked at the story of Nadab and Abihu, or Cain and Abel, and Nadab and Abihu and the young prophet out of Judah. And we saw in each of these instances it mattered what they believed. Cain's sacrifice was not by faith and Abel's was. Cain did not follow instructions and Abel did. Nadab and Abihu did not follow the command of God and it cost them their life. The young prophet out of Judah was given specific instructions on what he was to, was to and not to do, and he did not do that, and it cost him his life. It mattered what they believed. It mattered for those in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 who heard the lie what they believed. Those that heard and believed the lie would perish, it tells us. And we came to the conclusion of that if it mattered for Cain and Abel and Nadab and Abihu and the young prophet out of Judah, and it mattered for those in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it matters for us today what we believe about the Bible. And then last week we talked about the theme of the Bible. What is the theme? When we looked in lesson one, we saw there was complete and total agreement and a common theme. And we talked about that theme last week. The theme is about the Messiah or the Christ. The Old Testament focuses on Him coming. The Old Testament points to the coming of the Messiah. This is what the, these are the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And we looked at several of those in Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 53, and others. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are focused on the fact that he is present, was presently at that time when it was on earth. Here, here is, you know, Jesus talks about that it was, he could fulfill that it is written, or Matthew in writing that it is written, making the point that he was there at that time. And then in Acts through Revelation, the Messiah has already come. They point back to Jesus fulfilled those prophecies we had seen in the first point, and then he was coming again, and we were going to give an account for how we lived. And so the theme is all focused in the Old Testament, the Messiah is coming, the, the Gospels of the Messiah was here, and in the in Acts of Revelation, the Messiah has come and will come again. But the entire point of the Bible is pointing to the Messiah. Well, that brings us to our fourth lesson tonight, and the question we want to raise is what is the plan of salvation in the Bible? 
There is disagreement as to what somebody has to do to be saved among the religious world. The common thought is that you do it your way and I'll do it my way, and in the end we'll lead to the same place. But we've already seen in the second lesson, it makes a difference what we believe. We have to believe the Word of God because if we believe the lie, that is anything that's not the Word of God, then we will perish. So the question we want to raise is, what is the plan of salvation that is in the Bible? We're not talking about what's in some creed book, not something that this is because this is what the preacher says, or this is what the elders say, but what does the Bible say about the plan of salvation? But before we get into the plan itself this evening, we need to first and foremost understand why we needed salvation. Romans chapter 3. If you're not already turned there, be turning there. Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, we often go down to verse 23 to point out that, that all have sinned. We go straight to verse 23. But he's been making that point backing all the way up into verse 9. Back up into verse 9 with me. Beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? He's just been in chapter 1 dealing with the Gentiles that the Gentiles had sinned, in chapter 2 and really through chapter 3 and in verse 8, he's dealing with the Jews and the fact that the Jews sinned too, so don't become puffed up. So verse 8, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged, listen, both Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. So they're all under sin. Whether Jews or whether Greeks, they're all under sin. Look at verse 10. None righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, none who understands. In the verse 12, none who does good. In verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned. That's the point he's making. And that whatever the law says, verse 19, it said to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And then he comes beginning at verse 21 and makes the point that everybody needed to be justified, which is really what we're talking about. We need to find some way. To, we, need to, we need to know what we have to do to be saved. And he makes the point beginning at verse 21 that all needed to be justified because all had sinned. But now the righteousness of God, verse 21, apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. You see, all have sinned, and therefore all need a justification. That's the point he's making in Romans chapter 3. The reason we all need justification is because sin had separated us from God. Sin without a consequence doesn't really matter to anybody. If there is no consequence to sin, then it does not matter that sin is committed. There are two consequences we'll look at. Number one, Isaiah 59 points out, we're separated from God. The separation of Isaiah chapter 59 is a separation that we cannot come and worship Him or pray to Him. Look at verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor His ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. The picture painted here is not that you're, you're reaching and He's talking to the people to the Jews here, it's not that you're reaching out to God and God's hand is so short and He can't reach out to you. And it's not that His ear is so heavy that He cannot hear you, but there's a barrier between you and that barrier is put there by your sins. And so the sins are what have separated you from God. God's done His part for the barrier to be removed. Now you've got to do your part to finish removing the barrier. God's already done that at the sacrifice of Jesus. We've already looked at the Messiah and the prophecies concerning Him last week. So we're talking this week, we've already seen God's done His part. We're looking this week at what we've got to do to have that barrier removed. Because we're separated. We can't come to God in prayer. We can't come and worship God and expect it to be accepted because there's something separating us. But it's not just the separation in the here and now. If the only consequence of sin, if the only consequence of sin was consequences on earth, then sin still wouldn't seem that bad. 
But it's because of the eternal consequence that sin is so bad. Go to Romans chapter 6. If we simply look at it from the standpoint of what are the consequences in the here and now, then we might be okay with sin. But here's the eternal consequence. In Romans chapter 6, he's been making the point that grace is not a license to sin. You can't just keep on sinning and expect, well, the grace of God is going to abound. Verses 1 through 13. Or 14. Then he comes down in verse 15 and makes the point, you can't sin because you're not under law but under grace. So then he comes down in verse 20 and says, for, for when you were slaves of sin, he's just talked about how they were, they're slaves to the one whom they obey. If they're, if they're obeying God, they're slaves of His, uh, of righteousness, but if they're, if they're following sin, they're slaves of sin. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in these things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now in verse 23, as he's talking about the consequences of sin and why you should no longer continue in them, he makes the point the wages of sin is death and the gift of God is eternal life. Now, there is a sense, and we'll see this later, in which there is the second death. And that's what we're talking about here, and there's a sense in which we spiritually die. Now, the context here is not talking about when you sin, you're spiritually dead. That's a true point, but he's talking about the second death that we're going to see more about later on in Revelation 21a. But when you sin, you're separated from God in the here and now, Isaiah 59. But if your sin is left undealt with, you're separated from God for all eternity. I know that because he contrasts death to life. And the life is everlasting. Look again at verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He's contrasting life and death. If the life is eternal, the death is just as long, and that's eternal death. That's eternal condemnation. So it's not just that I'm separated and God won't hear my prayers now, but it's the fact that there's eternal separation and this eternal death that takes place if my sin is undealt with. Therefore, we needed salvation. We needed a way to be justified and forgiven of our sins. We've already seen in the previous lesson that we can be, that, that it's because of the blood of Christ we can have forgiveness of sins, but we're raising the question this evening, what is our part to be saved. What do we have to do in order to be saved? Let's understand before we move on, we are saved by grace, but the grace is conditional. This is one of the other things that comes up. People talk about, well, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace. And we are saved by grace. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. The fact we are saved by grace is an indisputable fact. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, really dropping down to, drop down to verse 5, even, verse 5, Ephesians 2, 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, listen, by grace you have been saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So when you're saved, you're, you're saved by grace. That's an indisputable fact. It's clearly stated here twice in Ephesians chapter 2, you're saved by grace. But the question becomes, is the grace conditional? Because what grace is, is an unmerited favor. It's a gift that is given. And so, if it's a gift given and you haven't done something to earn that, is it still a gift? That's the question that really is being raised. Can grace still be, can God still show us grace and the grace be conditional at the same time? See if we can illustrate that point. If I told you I was going to give you my iPad, you can have it, but all you have to do is walk up here to the front and, and I'll give it to you, then is it a gift or is it something you earned? You didn't pay me for it. You didn't do some work to get it. What you did was you walked to the front and I handed it to you. There was a condition to the gift that was given, but I still gave you a gift. Now that's what we're talking about with grace. God's grace is still a gift. We've done absolutely nothing to deserve the grace of God, but the grace is conditional. Now this doesn't mean that when we do these things that we've earned that. Go ahead and be turned to Romans chapter 4. 
It doesn't mean that when we do the things that God would have us to do, that we've earned our salvation. It's still a gift. We've not done anything to earn it, but we followed the conditions that are laid out. The conditions do not take away from the grace of God. Romans 4 and verse 6. Therefore it is of faith, or verse 16 rather. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So that the promise may be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. It's by faith that it might be according to grace. He just mentioned faith and grace. Now, oftentimes, people will talk about we're saved by grace only or faith only, and they'll put the two together, you're saved by grace and faith. But we have to understand, if we're justified by grace only, then even faith... Listen, if we're justified by grace only, then even faith is not essential. Because if it's by grace only, then there's no need for faith because faith is a work. Go to John 6. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6 and verse 28, they come to Jesus and they ask, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? We want to know what do we do to work the works of God. Listen to what he says in verse 29. This is the work of God. You might want to highlight this, underline this. This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. You know what that tells me right there? Faith is a work. And if faith is a work, and faith is essential, then grace is indeed conditional. And if grace is not conditional, then even faith is not necessary. Faith is a condition of grace. Ephesians 2 and in verse 8, where we were just a moment ago. Ephesians 2 and in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. You know what the faith in verse 8 is? It is a condition of the grace that he's already stated in verse 8. And in Romans chapter 4, as we were already saw in Romans 4 and verse 16, it's a faith that it might be according to grace. The faith and grace in Romans 4.16 are going hand in hand. The faith that it might be according to grace. The faith is not taking away from the grace of God, nor is any other thing that we do taking away from the grace of God. We have to understand that when we follow the conditions, we're still saved by God's grace, but the grace is conditional. So we must understand... And we must do all the conditions of the grace of God in order to be saved. We've got to do all the conditions. Not just the faith, but all the conditions laid out in the Scriptures in order to be saved. Now let's talk about those conditions over the next few moments. There's two plans we want to talk about. Number one, we're going to talk about the plan for the alien sinner. The plan for those that have never obeyed the gospel. And then we'll conclude by talking about the plan for the erring child of God. But let's talk about the plan for the alien sinner first and foremost. The first command for the alien sinner is that they hear. One of the first memory verses we probably all learned was Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Before we go any farther, and even those that will teach that works are not essential will believe you have to believe in God. We'll have to understand that before you believe, you have to first and foremost hear. How can they believe on Him on whom they have not heard? Romans 10, 13-17. Look at Romans 10, 13-17. He's making the point back in verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In order to be saved, you've got to call on the name of the Lord. How shall they call on Him, verse 14, in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him on whom they have not heard? So they can't believe unless they hear. And what they have to hear is the gospel. And how shall they hear, believe on him that they have not heard, how shall they hear, verse 14, without a preacher? And how shall they preach, verse 15, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You need to hear God's Word. If you want to call on the name of the Lord, you've got to believe, but before you can believe, you have to hear. And hearing is essential. Mark 4, 9 points out, Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You need to hear, and unless you hear, then you can't be saved. We can't go any farther. Just like we started with understanding that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and our sins have separated us to the here and now and our sins will separate us from all of eternity unless they're dealt with. We have to deal with that before we understand we need to be saved. When we get to the plan of salvation, we can't go any farther until we first and foremost understand we have to hear the Word of God. 
And the fact that we have to hear the Word of God is important. When you come and you say, what do I have to do to be saved? You don't leave here and say, well, this is what I have to do to be saved. And that's because that's what Brother Donnie said, or Micah said, or the elder said, or the Bible class teacher said, or my parents said, or anybody else told me. You believe it because it's what you read in the Word of God, because faith comes by hearing God's Word. Faith is begun and established in God's Word. If our faith is not established in the Word of God, then our faith really and truly is useless. We may believe what is true, but if we don't believe it for the right reasons, if we don't believe it because that's what God said, but because that's what we've always heard, then it's not doing us any good. We believe it because God's Word said it. Faith is based on God's Word. We're going to talk about faith in a second. But we have to understand that we can only have true and genuine faith if we first and foremost hear God's Word. Now, when we hear God's Word, it establishes belief or faith. We have to believe. Number two, for those that have never obeyed the Gospel, they need to believe. Romans 10.17 points out this belief or this faith is produced by hearing God's Word. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, once we've heard God's Word, if we believe God's Word to be true, then we have faith established, and we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we believe in God, then we can move forward. We have to begin by hearing God's Word and having the faith established. We have to understand, without faith, we cannot please God. In Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 11, in that great chapter of faith, in Hebrews 11 and in verse 6, it says, but without faith, It is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We need to believe, because without faith it's impossible to please God. Furthermore, we need to believe, because if we don't believe, we can't have everlasting life, but when we believe, we do. Again, another one of the first memory verses we probably all learned, and a verse that if you ask people, people that know absolutely nothing about the Bible can probably quote for you John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Listen, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, those that have the everlasting life and do not perish are those that believe on Him. Those that believe are the ones that can have everlasting life. The contrast to that is those that do not believe or those without belief, they have the second death. Go to Revelation 21 and verse 8. I said earlier we would come back to this. Revelation 21 and in verse 8. Here in Revelation 21, he's dealing with the description of heaven. And this entire chapter is devoted for the, with the description of heaven except verse 8 tells you those who are not in heaven and those who are lost and have the second death, which is punishment and eternity in hell. Now, here's what he says in verse 8. Here's the list of those that have the second death. Eternal death, those that are, con- that are, that are condemned. The cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part which burns in the lake with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. He just put right there in the list of all these things, the unbelieving. Those that do not believe have eternal death. Those that believe have eternal life. Because, this is important, without belief we're not going to move any further. And when we believe, we'll move forward and follow the steps that we're fixing to go through. But without belief, we will be hindered from doing any of the rest of the commands of God. Go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And a story well known to all of us, Acts chapter 8 is the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we'll revisit this story again later on. But I want us to see verse 36 and 37. In verse 36, the eunuch as they're coming along says, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Whatever's been taking place just before this is Philip is talking to him and he's been teaching him about Christ. He's taught him about the need to be baptized. We'll talk about that in a moment. But understand this, as he's taught him about the need to be baptized, when the eunuch sees the water, he asks, what is hindering me from being baptized? Listen to Philip's answer. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And then we have the confession there by the eunuch that we'll come back and visit later. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But understand here the question and the answer. 
The question was, what hinders me? And Philip says, if you believe, then really nothing's hindering you. What that tells me is, if you do not believe, then you have a pretty big hindrance you've got to overcome. If he believes he's not hindered, therefore, if he does not believe, he is hindered. Because without belief, we're not going to follow any of the rest of the commands of God. If we don't believe that Jesus is, we don't believe in God, we don't believe the Bible to be God's Word, then we're not going to follow anything else it says. It doesn't matter where we have to repent and we have to confess and we have to be baptized and we have to live faithful and all this because none of that matters if I don't have faith in the first place. So we have to have faith. Now we've heard God's Word, we have to establish a true and genuine faith deeply rooted in God's Word. Then we're ready to move forward. But now, you've heard the Word of God and you believe... What does the alien sinner need to do next? And that is they need to repent. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, as Paul is preaching in the midst of the Areopagus there, as he's preaching to the, to the scholars of the day in Acts 17, and he comes to his conclusion here, you know, he's made the point about the unknown God, and I preach this unknown God to you. And he quotes from some of their poets to make the point that even their poets understood there was a Creator, there was somebody higher. In Him we live and move and have our being. And he comes to the end and he's making the point about truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. Oh, these times of ignorance where? These were looking at the unknown God. These times of ignorance where people were doing things that they shouldn't have done. There are these times of ignorance God overlooked. But listen, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. It's commanded to repent. All men everywhere need to repent, Acts 17. I think no passage may better illustrate that, or talking about repentance in Luke 13, 3. In Luke chapter 13, you have those, <coughs> excuse me, you have those in Acts 13 that are, are, are talking about and telling Jesus about the, the Galileans whose blood, verse 1, Pilate had mingled with the sacrifice, their sacrifice. And, and, and Jesus is making the point, you know, do you suppose these Galileans, these Galileans you're talking about, whose blood's been mingled with the sacrifices, that they were worse than all the others, than all other Galileans, because they suffered these things? Do you think that these people were worse than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? Listen to verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Then in verse 4. He says, or do you suppose the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse sinners than all the other men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Verse 5 again, same thing as verse 3. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. This is the misconception that when bad things happen, it's because something is amiss in our lives. And he's making the point to them, you're thinking, well, it's terrible these Galileans over here's blood was mingled with the sacrifices. And it's terrible that these over here, the Tower of Siloam fell, these 18, and they were killed. That's so terrible. But you think they must have been worse than everybody else because they suffered these fate. And Jesus is making the point to them, these people aren't worse than anybody else. These, these over here on the 18 on whom the tower fell, these Galileans over here whose blood was mingled with the sacrifices aren't worse sinners than all other Galileans and all the other men that dwelt in Jerusalem. But if you don't repent, then you're going to perish. The difference is, listen, the difference in the perishing of the people he was talking to and the perishing of the 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and on the Galileans is their perishing was going to be eternal. Unless you repent, unless you turn from your sins, you're all going to perish. But you're not going to perish in the same way. You're not going to perish by a tower falling on you. You're not going to perish by your blood being mingled with a sacrifice. Your perishing is going to be eternal. So we need to repent. Otherwise, we'll all likewise perish. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, we often go here to talk about baptism. But in Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, <coughs> he tells them to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Let's talk about that for just a second. Repentance is, is for the remission of sins. Often the most controversial, almost always the most controversial topic in the plan of salvation is going to be baptism. We'll talk about that in a moment. But the hardest of all the things in the plan of salvation to do is repentance. Repentance is for the remission of sins, which we'll see later on is the same reason we're going to be baptized later on. But repentance is the hardest part to do. Being baptized is one of the easiest parts of the plan of salvation. 
But the repentance and having to turn from your sins is the hard part. Listen to what Thayer says defining it. To change one's mind for the better, heartily to amend with abhorrence to one's past sins. Nathan talked this morning about this godly sorrow and how sometimes we look at the earthly consequences and instead we're not viewing sin as God does and having the proper view. And so we may change, but we may change for the wrong reasons because of, of, of being ashamed or something like that. But you know, we may change and we may give something up and may give it up forever and never really repent. Suppose you have somebody that that has, from a young age, been an alcoholic. And as they get older, they realize they're having health troubles that result from that, so they give up drinking. They just give it up entirely. But they give it up because they want to not have all these health They're hoping it'll help with the health troubles. Has that person repented? They gave it up. But they've not repented. Because look at the definition again. It's changed one's mind for the better. Hardly listen to a man with abhorrence to one's past ends. Do they look at that and abhor what they've previously done? Unless we view sin as bad, realizing how bad sin is, unless we have the proper view of sin, then we're not really repenting. We're just simply giving something up. Repentance demands that we not only give it up, but that we realize what we did was wrong. I think no passage in Scripture better illustrates that than Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, 28 to 32, you have the two sons. The first son, the father comes, depending on your translation and depending on the account, it's either the first son says no or the, and, and does, and then later goes, or the second son says no and later goes. But either way, one says no and one says yes. Now here's what happens. He goes to a son, he says go and work in the field. The first son says no, I will not go. He goes to the second, so the father goes to the second and says, go and work in the field. He says, yes, I will go. It tells us in the text, the older translations say he repented, or the newer translations say he regretted his decision. He felt guilty for what he had done. He regretted it. And the regret led to him going into the field and doing the work his father wanted him to do in the first place. The second son said yes, but he never did go. Which The question Jesus raises is, which son did the will of the Father? Well, it's the son that said no, but regretted it and went. He, he regretted what he did. He felt bad about what he did. Realized what he did was wrong, and then went and did what he should have done in the first place. That passage illustrates exactly what repentance is. There's the regret that takes place, and he realized what he did was wrong, and he went and he did what he should have done in the first place and gave up doing the wrong. That's why it's so hard to, for, to do repentance. That's why repentance is the hardest step. Because it not only requires you giving something up, it requires a change in your attitude as well. Listen, giving up, giving up sin because that's what my family wants me to do. Giving up sin because that's what, what my friends say I should do. Giving up sin because that's what the elders say I should do. And you give it up, but you don't feel the guilt. And you give it up, but you don't realize what you did was wrong is not repentance. That's just quitting the sin. You have to realize that what you've done is wrong. That you have to abhor the past sin. That's what repentance is. Once you abhor it and you turn from it and abhor it, that's when repentance is taking place. That's what repentance is all about. And so we need to hear. We need to believe. For those that are never obeyed the gospel, they need to hear the word of God. They need to believe. They need to repent of their sins. They need to confess their faith. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Romans 10, 9 and 10. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes in a righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I think it's important to understand. When we go back here just a second and we look at this list right here, the, the, the ones that are typically not disputed is the fact you have to hear and the fact you have to believe. When you come over here in Romans 10, 9 and 10, this confession of who Jesus is is equated on the same level as the belief. That shows us the importance of confession. The confession is of who Jesus is, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, verse 9, and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The result of the confession is the same result as the belief, and that is you will be saved. That shows us the central of confessing who he is. 
This is the same confession that the eunuch made in Acts 8.37. We saw earlier, he raised the question, what hinders me from being baptized? He was told, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the confession that you make before one obeys the gospel. They confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Now, before, as we're dealing with confession, we need to understand, because there's confusion on this from those in the religious world, this is not the confession of sins. We're going to deal with 1 John 1, 9 later on with the erring child of God, but often you'll hear people talk about confessing sins and obeying the gospel. The confession of sins was a command for the erring child of God. The alien sinner's command was to confess their faith. So we need to understand that 1 John 1, 9, and we'll go there later, is written to those that are already Christians. But Romans 10, 9 and 10 is making the point that the confession is made prior to one's obedience to the gospel. Before somebody obeys and we baptize them, we need to know they confess that they believe Jesus to be the Son of God. They believe Him to be who He claimed to be. That's the confession that the, the alien sinner is making, not a confession of sins. That's for, that command was for the erring child of God. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. Matthew 10.32 If we confess Jesus, then He will confess us before His Father, but if we deny Him... Verse 33, He will deny us before His Father. So we need to confess Jesus if we want to be confessed. Otherwise, we'll be, denied, we'll be denying Him, and in the end, we'll be denied before the Father. So we need to hear. Those who never obeyed the gospel, what do they need to do to be saved? They need to hear, they need to believe, repent, confess, and they need to be baptized. In Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the remission of sins. It's the same reason, as we stated earlier, the reason for baptism is the same reason for repentance. You have to be baptized in order to have the remission of sins. It's unto the remission of sins. The argument is made at times that one is baptized because they've already achieved the forgiveness of sins. And the word here does not uh, indicate that at all. This is the verse that's used to make the argument from Acts 2.38. But I think it's important we understand something. Matthew chapter 26. Go to Matthew 26 with me. Remember, Acts 2.38 reads, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. For the remission of sins. Remember that phrase. Now look at Matthew 26 and in verse 28. For this is my blood, verse 28, He's instituting the Lord's Supper. The institutes the fruit of the vine, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Listen to the phrase, for the remission of sin. Do you know that phrase in the Greek, for the remission of sin, is the same phrase that occurs over in Acts 2.38. You know the reason you're baptized is for the same reason that Jesus died? Jesus died that all could have the remission of sins. You are baptized so that you can have the remission of sins. If, here's the consequence, if Acts 2.38 is teaching that you're baptized because you've already been forgiven, then Jesus died because we've all already been forgiven. That's the consequence of that. It's the same exact wording, the same exact phrase in the original language. If baptism is simply done because we've been forgiven, then so Jesus died because we've all been forgiven. Nobody would, just, would agree with that. Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. We have the forgiveness of sins because He died. And for those who don't obey the gospel, they have the forgiveness of sins because they've been baptized. They obey the gospel, they're baptized. That's when they have the forgiveness of sins. It's not before, but it's after they're baptized. Just like we didn't have forgiveness of sins until after the sacrifice of Christ. We're baptized for the same reason that Jesus died. Now go to Mark 16. Mark chapter 16. Mark 16 and in verse 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Here's what he says. If you believe and you're baptized, you're saved. If you do not believe, you'll be condemned. Now, so don't go to Mark 16, 16 and talk about, well, he doesn't say if you're not believed and you're not baptized, you're condemned, just if you don't believe. Remember what we saw previously. If you do not believe, you're hindered from following all the other commands of God. The eunuch would not have been baptized if he did not believe, that would have hindered him from being baptized. Therefore, in Mark 16, 16, when you believe, then you'll follow the commands of God, which the command is to be baptized. That's the command given in Mark 16, 16. And then you'll be saved. 
But if you do not believe at all, then you won't be baptized. Because it's hindering you from following any of the commands. Because if you don't believe at all, then you don't believe anything the Bible teaches, so there's no need to be baptized. And so, if you do not believe, then you're not going to be baptized. But if you believe, then you follow the command, which is baptism, and then you can be saved. But only if you believe and are baptized. Again, we said confession and belief were equated on the same level earlier. Here in this text, we have belief and baptism on the same level. The belief and the baptism have the same result, and that's you being saved. It's the same result we saw from the believing and the confession of Jesus as the Son of God in Romans 10, 9, and 10. Furthermore, we're baptized to wash away our sins. Acts chapter 20 and verse 16. And now why do you wait? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. If you remember when we were in Acts chapter 10 earlier, we were talking about the need to hear and the hearing produced the belief and the result of the belief, verse 14, was that you would call on the name of the Lord. Those that call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so they can't call on Him on whom they not believe. They can't believe on Him on whom they have not heard. Now you've heard, you've believed. We'll come all the way down here. Here's what takes place next. You're baptized. Because according to Acts 22, or 20 and in verse 16, two things. You're baptized to wash away your sins, which we've already seen. That's how we have the remission of sins. Our sins are washed away. And when you're baptized, you call on the name of the Lord. The calling on the name of the Lord of Acts 20 and verse 16 is taking place at baptism. So when you think about Joel 2 and the quotation about those that call on the name of the Lord, when you come to Romans chapter 10 and it says those that call on the name of the Lord, calling on the name of the Lord is what's taking place here at baptism according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 16. So if one wants to be to call on the name of the Lord and all will agree you need to call on the name of the Lord, they may disagree as to how, but all will agree typically you need to call on the name of the Lord. Well, that's done through baptism according to Acts chapter 20 and verse 16. It's done with the washing away your sins and calling on the name, or calling on the name of the Lord. First Peter chapter 3. Let's continue on. Why are we baptized? We're baptized for a business appeal for a good conscience. First Peter 3 21. First Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21. The ESV reads baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's some important facts we need to understand. Our conscience is purged through the death of Christ. Go to Hebrews 9. We'll come back to First Peter, make application of 1 Peter 3 in just a second. We want to see some information to help us understand what's taking place in baptism here. Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9 and verse 11. But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made in, with hands, that is, not of his creation. Not with the blood of bulls and calves, of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, listen to verse 14 closely, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, listen, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Your conscience is cleansed when we access His blood, when we access His death. That's what He's pointing out. It's the blood of Christ, verse 14. And we know from Romans chapter 6 that baptism is into His death. As many of you have been baptized into, into Christ have been have put on Christ, Romans chapter 6. Remember, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Listen to verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, listen, were baptized into His death? You see, at baptism we access His blood. We're baptized into His death. It's by His death or by His blood that we're purged from our own conscience. And so 1 Peter 3.21 is pulling that together. At baptism, you make an appeal for a good conscience. So when you're baptized, you know that you can have your sins washed away and you can have a clear conscience knowing that if you were to lose your life, you would have your reward. That's done through baptism. That's what baptism's for. It's an appeal for a good conscience. Some translations mistranslate that and talk about it being an answer of a good conscience. The word there just means an appeal. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. And it happens when you're, when you're baptized for the right reasons and you obey the gospel, <clears throat> excuse me, you obey the gospel and you access the death of Christ, Christ's blood 
and his death through the waters of baptism. And then finally, our baptism is a burial, Romans 6, verse 4. So it tells us it's immersion. But Galatians 3.27 is ultimately how we put on Christ. Galatians chapter 3. Back up to verse 26. Galatians 3 and verse 26 and 27. For you are all sons of God. Listen, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's the faith. There's the belief we've already talked about in Christ Jesus. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. You know how they put on Christ? They put Him on through baptism. That tells me the importance of needing to be baptized because being baptized is for the remission of sins. It's how I'm saved. It's to have my sins washed away. And remember we saw it's how we call on the name of the Lord. It's an appeal for a good conscience. And then right down here, it's how we put on Christ. That shows me of the importance of needing to be baptized. So if there's those that have never obeyed the gospel, they, they need to hear the word of God and they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And if they do that, they need to be willing to repent of their sins. They need, they need to change, but they need to change and realize what they've done previously was wrong, have that abhorrence for it, to confess their faith in Jesus Christ and to be buried in the waters of baptism. But what if there are those that have obeyed the gospel, but they've wandered away? Is there, what's the plan for the erring child of God? In Acts chapter 8, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, and in verse 22, Acts 8 and verse 22, Peter tells Simon the sorcerer to repent of therefore of this your wickedness and pray God and perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon has obeyed the gospel. He is an erring child of God. He's already obeyed the gospel. We've seen in verses previously he's been baptized. So here in Acts 8, 27, he's repenting of this, <coughs> excuse me, this is wickedness. This repentance is like the repentance that takes place when one obeys the gospel. They need to change their actions, but they need to change their heart and have that abhorrence for their past sin. They realize what they've done previously is wrong. So it's not just the changing of what they're doing, but they change and realize what to do is wrong. That still takes place for the erring child of God. Just because somebody's obeyed the gospel and they wandered away doesn't mean they can continue in sin. That's what Romans 6 is dealing with. You've died to sin, how can you continue any longer therein? But you're repenting of your sins. You're turning away from it just as you did when you obeyed the gospel. But not only do you repent of your sins, this is where, this is where, the repentance, or the confession, rather, of sins is taking place. Go to 1 John 1. 1 John 1 and in verse 9. If we confess our sins, verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the confession of sins. This confession needs to take place for those that are the erring child of God. Now, there's an important understanding of this confession. There are two different types of confession taking place. There's that which is of a private nature, and it's between you and God. When you sin and you sin in a private nature, then the confession taking place needs to be you acknowledging to God that you have sinned against Him. If you sinned against God in thought, or you sinned against God in any other way that's of a private nature, you don't have to come forward and, and ask for forgiveness because we don't know about that. If you want the prayers of the congregation, we'll be glad to pray with you and for you. But, you, but that's between you and God, so you can take that to God in a private nature. It's just you take it to God and acknowledge before Him that you have sinned. But when sin is of a public nature, when sin is known, then the confession needs to be before your brethren. James chapter 5. In James chapter 5 and in verse 16, James 5 and in verse 16, he says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So if sins of a private nature between you and God, then you need to take that to God in prayer. But if sin is of a public nature, if your sin is known, then you don't need to just take that to God in prayer and pray to Him and then expect everything to be going on as normal because we don't know that you've dealt with this sin. We don't know that you've realized what you've done is wrong. That sin needs, and that confession needs to be taken, needs to be of a public nature. So when somebody's guilty of sin of a public nature, they need to confess that publicly. If the sin's of a private nature, they can take that to God in prayer and ask Him for forgiveness. And it may never be known by the whole that they have done something wrong. But the confession needs to be as public as the sin is. And the confession needs to be as public as the sin is. If one brother sins against another, he needs to acknowledge that sin to the one whom he sinned against. He doesn't have to acknowledge it before everyone. 
If one sins against two or three, they can they should confess it to those that they've sinned against. If one sins against God, but nobody else is involved, they need to acknowledge that to God. If one sins and it's known of a wide nature, then they need to acknowledge it before the whole congregation. They need to acknowledge their sin. This, the confession needs to be as public as the sin is. So if the sins of a private nature, the confession can be private. If the sins of a public nature, the confession needs to be public. The sin, the confession is as, is as public as the sin is. And then lastly, you pray for forgiveness. You already have this, this repentance taking place. You need to change your actions in your heart. You've acknowledged the fact that I have sinned. And you need to pray to God for forgiveness. In Acts 8.22, He told him to repent of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven you. So when one has sin, when one is an erring child of God and they realize they've done what is wrong, then they need to repent of that sin, to confess that sin, and to pray to God for forgiveness. And when one obeys the gospel, they will fall from time to time. They will make mistakes. And then thankfully God has given us this second law of pardon whereby we may be forgiven when we do sin. First John chapter 2 and in verse 1, These much little children, these things I write to you that you sin not. This should encourage, we should be encouraged not to sin, but if we do sin, then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And so we need to try and avoid sin, but when we do sin, we, we should be thankful that we have the second law of pardon whereby we may be forgiven again. Let's reach some conclusions this evening, and then the lesson will be yours. Here's what we've seen. We know, we know the Bible is God's Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what we saw in lesson one. We've come to the conclusion in our second lesson, it matters what we believe about the Bible. And those that do not believe in 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, the truth but believe the lie will perish. And that's eternal perishing. That's eternal punishment. And we know we've got to follow Jesus. We reached that conclusion last week that Jesus being the theme of the Bible and the main character of the Bible, that we need to understand His importance and we've got to follow His Word as He tells us in John 12, 48, that His Word is the standard whereby we're going to be judged then we need to follow the plan of salvation that's in the Bible. Because we know the Bible is God's Word, we know it matters what we believe, we know we've got to follow Jesus, and we know that His Word is the standard by which we're going to be judged, we follow the plan of salvation that's in the Bible. And that's the plan of salvation that is there in the Bible. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, we've just talked about what you've got to do to be saved. You've heard the Word of God and you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Are you willing to repent of your sins? Change your actions, but change your attitude towards it. Realize and have that abhorrence for your past sins. Confess that faith you have in Jesus Christ and be buried in the waters of baptism. Don't do that because that's what I say. Don't do that because that's what you've always heard. Do that because that's what we've seen the Scriptures teach. Maybe you're here and you've done that and you've obeyed the Gospel, but somewhere along the line you've not lived as you should. If you're willing to repent of your sins, the same thing you did when you obeyed the gospel. You're willing to change your actions, but you have that change of heart and have that, abhor past, that abhorrence of what you've done. To acknowledge that sin, however public that sin may be, and to pray to God for forgiveness, He will forgive. If the sins of a private nature, take it to Him and pray privately. If it's of a public nature, we'll pray with you and for you for God to forgive you. But no matter what your need is, if we can assist you this evening in any way, would you not come forward us together we stand and as we sing?